listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Listen, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn with me. Uh, there's a word from the Lord found in the book of 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, chapter 16, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to ask you to read with me uh, those 13 verses as we uh, look at that. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 1, the word of the Lord says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these and then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and, beautiful, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Read for you 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. We have been, for the last few weeks, as most of you know, uh, dealing with the attributes of God. And from this passage in 1 Samuel, I'd like today to talk about the attribute God's wisdom. God's wisdom as it is on display in this passage. From 1 Samuel 16. I told you as I began that I'd be sharing a couple of news flashes with you. I've already kind of shared the first one. Second one, would you like to hear the second one? Yeah. Okay. Second one is this. There is a categorical and definitive difference between our ways and wisdom and the wisdom and ways of God. Is that a news flash to anybody? Does anybody, does that new? Okay, everybody understands that, right? We know there is a huge difference between our ways and wisdom and God's ways and wisdom. While God may certainly be known by mankind, 
He is still incomprehensible in the totality of his person and purposes. His thoughts and ways are higher than ours. In fact, he says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is important for us to always acknowledge uh, that our minds are finite and his mind is infinite. Our wisdom is limited while he is, is unlimited. Our understanding has boundaries while his understanding is as vast as the very universe that he created. I, we, we, our vision is limited while God has x-ray vision. He's higher than we are. For, for these reasons, uh, we must surrender ourselves to complete dependence on and total trust in the wisdom of God and not ours. In fact, the proverb says this, um, that we should uh, acknowledge him in all of our ways, right? And lean not to our own understanding, but acknowledge him in all of our ways because he is so much higher than we are. Jonathan Edwards, that noted Puritan preacher from the 1700s, said this of this subject, a truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3 and 5. Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency, Paul says, is from God. And then I love the way the 11th century philosopher and Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury articulates his thoughts on this topic when he says, Lord, I acknowledge and I thank, and I thank thee that thou hast created me in this thine image in order that I may be mindful of thee, my, uh, may conceive of thee and love thee. But that image, he says, has been so consumed and wasted away by vices and obscured by the smoke of wrongdoing that it cannot achieve that for which it was made, except thou renew it and create it anew. I do not endeavor Anselm says, O Lord, to penetrate thy sublimity, for in no wise do I compare my understanding with that, with thine, but I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. God solicits our surrender to him. He does it so that we can learn from him. He, he demonstrates his prowess as it relates to wisdom, in order to teach us valuable lessons throughout life. Uh, he, he, he desires that we might just watch him and, and learn from his awesomeness as we go through life. He, he wants to teach. And some of these valuable lessons I have discovered in this passage that is before us today. If, if I might, I'd like to discuss God's wisdom as it is recorded 
in this story. And so as I look at this story, the first lesson that I see is this. God's wisdom is unmatched. God's wisdom is unmatched. So, so, so to be unmatched in this context is to be unrivaled, to be sovereign above all of others, alone having supreme authority, supreme power, supreme ability, supreme rank, and supreme resources. That's the God that we serve. Merritt Hughes says this about it. He says, God is a supreme, uh, uncreated light of which wisdom is born. There was never a time, Hughes says, when God, God's wisdom did not exist. He's always been God, and he's always been supremely wise. Uh, God, uh, so, so I like to kind of put my spin on it and say this. If you bear with me, can I just use a little bit of my vernacular? Can't nobody, and I know the English doesn't, doesn't line up, but let me just say it the way I like Can't nobody beat God being God. Uh, many have tried. Uh, he, he's often imitated, but he's never, ever, ever been duplicated. You remember that Satan, then known as Lucifer, attempted it and tried it, but it didn't end up too well. The record of the incident is recorded in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. It's there that it's recorded how this went when Satan tried what he tried. It says this, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Nobody can beat God being God. It's been tried, but it's never been accomplished. In verse 1, in verse 1 of our text, we see the unmatched authority of God on display because it's in, it's in verse 1 that we find three affirmative, conclusive statements. We have two I haves and one I will. Let me read verse 1 again real quickly. Verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Uh, so we have these statements, and, and these statements are interesting because we as human beings oftentimes make some similar statements. The difference is, is that God has the authority and the power and the wisdom to actually follow through with making those statements. We can say those things, but we're so limited in who we are and what we can do that we may even have the best of intentions, but our intentions oftentimes fail because we cannot ascend to the heights and the levels for which God is. God says, uh, I have rejected him. That's the first statement he makes. Uh, God, I'll share with you, is the only one holding the stamps. One says approved and one says rejected. And the sovereign God of the entire universe has stamped Saul rejected. Now, to understand Saul's rejection, we have to go back and pick up the story in chapter 8. 
In chapter 8, Samuel is serving as judge of Israel, but something happens to Samuel that if we live long enough will happen to all of us. Story goes as Samuel realizes in chapter 7 that he's getting old. And somebody in here should be able to smile or say something because when I say this, getting old is never fun. And I know there's some people in here that are a lot older than me, but there's some people in here that are younger than me. And let me share with those of you that are younger than me that getting old is not fun. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm reminded that I'm getting older because uh, now when I get up in the morning, Hillary, it takes me a little longer to get up than it used to. When I wake up in the morning now, there are things that hurt that didn't hurt when I went to bed last night I, I, that I even, didn't even know I had. Getting old is no fun. It, I'm, you know, things happen when you get older. Like, you go to sleep, and I think somebody sneaks in my bedroom at night and takes a, a, a gray pencil or a gray crayon or a gray marker or something and just starts marking in my head. I know it happens because every morning I wake up, I'm a little grayer than I was when I went to sleep last night. Getting old, and Samuel has dis discovered that he's not as young as he used to be. He's getting older, and he realizes that getting old is not any fun, and he realizes that he can't do what he used to do. And so he decides to appoint his sons to be judges over Israel. And so he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as his successors. Once appointed, though, Samuel's sons fall victim to the temptation of material gain, and they fail miserably. The people come to Samuel and demand to have a king like the other nations. Here's the thing. The big mistake is wanting to do something or have something just for the sole purpose uh, that somebody else has it. That's the only reason you have. I, I want to be like someone. It's never a good idea. It never ends well when we have a desire to just be like someone just because we want to be like them. I remember growing up, I, I tried that with my parents, and I was quickly put in my place when I would say, I want to do this or do that or go here or go there or stay out late because my friends are doing it. And my mother, my daddy would say, I don't care what they're doing. As long as you're in my house, we go by my rules. Somebody should be able to relate to that. I thought we were going to practice the whole amen thing. There we go. <laughs> Somebody should say, because if you don't remember having that experience as a child, you probably know if you have them that you've said that to your children, right? It's ne it never ends well when we want to have something or do something just because somebody, and Israel has now decided that they want a king just because other nations have one. It doesn't end well. And so God, through Samuel, tries to warn them about the king that they thought they wanted. He says this to them, listen, watch this, I'm going to show you what this king will be like. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards and of your olive yards. He will take your, a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. This warning seemingly didn't work because... Their response was, none of that matters. We still want a king like everybody else. They had a desire to be a king. So in chapter, for, the, for God to appoint them a king, 
Uh, so in chapter 9, God relents and Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. Saul appeared to have all the makings of a king. He was tall. He was attractive. From the, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a capable and experienced military leader. But he also had a rebellious nature and would not share his power and popularity, which led to trouble as God had predicted that it would. His trouble begins in chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, he failed to wait for Samuel at Gilgal and made excuses for his failure. Then in chapter 14, he neglected the needs of his own men and swore a foolish oath that almost cost uh, his, the life of his son, Jonathan. And then finally, in chapter 15, the straw that broke the camel's back was when he failed to kill King Agag and all the Amalekites along with the livestock. Uh, and then lies to Samuel about him. You remember the story in chapter 15, God says, Amalek has been evil to Israel. So Saul, I'm ordering you, I'm commanding you to go and wipe them out. Don't bring anything back with you. So, so Saul sets out to do what God has ordered him to do. And he goes to Amalek and he begins to wipe everything out. But he has an idea. It's always dangerous when we have ideas. That God didn't give us, right? When we lean on our own understanding, it's always there. And he has this idea. Well, there are some very fine-looking livestock that would make good sacrifices. And we're going to, rather than take King Agag out, we're going to capture him and bring him back. So he does that. He doesn't do what God tells him to do. And Samuel then confronts him and says to him, did you follow through with what God told you to do. And it is almost as if when he responds, he has his chest stuck out and he says, well, absolutely I did. I did what God told me to do. I've accomplished my task. And Samuel says, you're a liar. He doesn't say it like that, but I'm putting my, I'm putting my spin on it. I think that may have been what was on his mind because he says, if you did, then why do I hear the sheep bleeding in the background? He says this, and I think God says the same thing to us. Because his excuse was that he brought these things back in order to sacrifice them. Samuel says to Saul, don't you realize that obedience is better than sacrifice? So then, as a result of all of these failings that Saul had, God now, in chapter 16, has rejected Saul. Saul has been rejected. And then God says this. First, he says, I have rejected him. He stamped Saul rejected. Then he says this, I will send thee, Samuel, to Jesse's house. Let me say something to you. When uh, you are unmatched, sovereign, and have supreme wisdom, there is one thing that will always accompany those that are sent by you, and that is favor. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you can relate to this, but one of the things that I always like to say and live by is this. I would rather have God's favor than anything else. I would rather have God's favor than riches. I would rather have God's favor than almost anything else that I can think of because God's favor will provide a way for you uh, to succeed, to prosper, whatever that means. It, it, it could be spiritually, whatever that means, because God's favor will cause those that don't even care much about you. Now, everybody here probably doesn't realize, most of you, don't, probably don't realize or are willing to admit that there are some people that don't care much about you. But you know what? There are people in the world 
that don't care much about. Everybody has those people. They may, you may not ever realize it because oftentimes they know how to, how to uh, disguise themselves as friends, right? But we have those people that really on the inside they could care less about. And watch this. When God sends us somewhere, though, his favor goes with us, and it will cause even those people that uh, pretend to like us but really don't, it will even cause them to bless us. His favor. He says, Samuel, I will send you, and when I send you, my favor will go with you. And we find that that really happens. He says, I will send you, and then he says this, I have provided me a king. I've chosen. I have. I have supreme authority. I'm able to do that. I have provided me a king, chosen a king, and provided him for my people. First lesson that I see in the text is that God's wisdom is unmatched. But then I see something else, and that is that God's wisdom is revealed in his attention to detail. It's, it's kind of in verses 1 through 4 that we see that. In verses 1 through 4, we realize uh, that his ways, God's ways and his wisdom are not random, not accidental, not coincidental. They don't happen by chance, but rather they are very specific and deliberate. God doesn't do anything by accident or happenstance. Everything that he endeavors to do is well thought out. There's a great deal of foresight and planning that goes into anything that God does. He is unlike us. God is never caught off guard or ill-prepared. He is very deliberate in everything he does. It's there in the story. Uh, God sent Samuel to a deliberate town. It was not an accident that he sends him to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Uh, he, he sends him there for a reason. Bethlehem was just a small hamlet located about six miles south of Jerusalem, but it was well known to the Jewish people. In Genesis 35, 19, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, died near Bethlehem while giving birth to Benjamin and was buried there. Uh, the story of Ruth, the Moabitess, is set primarily in Bethlehem. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth met and married Boaz and gave birth to Obed, David's grandfather. David himself was born in Bethlehem and would go on to make it famous. The prophet Micah in Micah 5.2 proclaimed that the Davidic Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And, of course, this prophecy is later proven to be true, as Bethlehem is, in fact, the birthplace of the long-awaited Messiah. He sends him to a specific and a deliberate town, but then when he gets there, these verses point out that he sends him to a specific and deliberate family. He says, go to Bethlehem, and when you go to Bethlehem, don't just go to a random family. Don't just go to a random house, but go to Jesse's house. There's significance there. Uh, if you trace the history, you'll see that God had been at work long before now in this family, planning for this very day that would come. He brought Rahab, a pagan idolatress, into the nation of Israel, and she married Salmon and gave birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth, uh, and they have Obed, David's grandfather. It was in the works for a long time preparing for this day. He sends him to this specific and deliberate town, to this specific 
and deliberate family, but then he sends him to a deliberate and specific person, which brings me to my third and final point. Not only is God's wisdom unmatched, not only is God's wisdom revealed in his attention to detail, God's wisdom often challenges our preconceptions. That was another amen place right there. Uh, Somebody should be able to relate to that. God's wisdom will baffle us and it will challenge us. It will challenge the thoughts that we have. It will challenge our preconceptions. God sends Samuel to anoint the next king. The problem is, is that the only experience Samuel had with anointing a king was his experience with Saul. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 2 says that uh, Saul looked kingly. He was very handsome, very tall. In fact, he was taller than anybody else in all of Israel. So because of this experience, Samuel has a preconceived notion about how a king should look. He already has made up his mind when he goes to Jesse's house, the kind of king he's looking for. He's already decided that king, the next king should look like Saul. Now, don't don't get all judgmental about Samuel and his preconceptions because the reality is is that we all have preconceptions. All of us are guilty of that. Uh, All of us have preconceptions based on our life experiences. The late theologian and preacher Dr. Charles Booth contends that there are many things that go into making up our view, our slant, our outlook, our preconceived notions in life. He says that there are streams are tributaries that flow into us throughout life that shape and mold our psyche. Things like family will shape and mold us. The DNA that we have, biological, sociological, physiological DNA, shape and form our thoughts. Community, certain mores, certain values that uh, we experience in our community, the community that surrounds us as we're raised, uh, go into uh, helping form our preconceptions and ideas about life. Our education will help us, will flow into us rather, and, and, and give us thoughts and ideas about life. Uh, friends, the friends that we have, the associations that we have will have an impact and an effect on how we view life. Not only will friends have an impact, but also enemies. And oftentimes we don't like to think we have any, but that we have at least one. His name is Satan. Amen. That was good. Thank you, brother. (laughs) All of these things serve to form our preconceptions. All these make deposits into us, and collectively they make up our experiences. Here's the thing about experiences. Experiences can cause you to go into a situation thinking that you already know the outcome simply because it happened that way before. Can I put my spin on it again, kind of give it to you in my vernacular? Somebody said, yeah. God will flip the script on you. And somebody should have said amen right there because all of us, all of us have been in situations that we thought we knew how it was going to go. And God just totally baffled us and blew our mind and totally flipped the script on it. And we didn't know where that came from, why God would do what he did. But we just decided he did it because he's God. And he will do that. Uh, one must temper or suspend any predispositions when dealing with God. His wisdom and ways surprise us sometimes because he can see what we can't see. It's in verse 7. Verse 7 says, God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God 
sees the heart. We can't see what's on the inside. And God will be able to do that. And because of that, we have to do away with all of that baggage, all of those experiences when we're dealing with God. What happens in the text is that Samuel gets to Jesse's house and the boys begin to be paraded by in front of him. And the first one that comes in is Eliab. And when Samuel sees Eliab, Eliab reminds him of Saul. He's tall. He's handsome. He looks uh, similar to how Saul looked. And so in Samuel's mind, Samuel believes because of his experiences, because of his preconceptions, he thinks certainly Eliab has to be the one. But God says, no, I have rejected him. You can only see what's on the outside. You can't see what's in the heart. That's not him. And so then Samuel, uh, 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 Jesse begins to march. The rest of his sons by Abinadab comes by and God rejects him. Shammah comes by and God rejects him. Four other of Jesse's sons come by and God rejects all of them. No matter what Samuel was thinking, God says neither of these fit the bill. So he says to Samuel, ask Jesse, does Jesse have any more sons? Samuel says, are these all of your sons? Because none of them fit. Now, God sent me here for a reason. I came to anoint a king, and none of these boys fit the bill. Do you have any more sons? And uh, Jesse says, well, well, I mean, there's the youngest boy, but he's out minding the sheep right now, and certainly you don't want to see him. He, he's the youngest of the group. Uh, he's ruddy. He, he, he doesn't, he, he's not kingly. You don't, he says, send for him, because... Until you send for him, we will not sit down. We will not go any further. And Jesse sends for David, who is minding the sheep. And before David even enters the room, before he makes his grand entrance, before he says anything or anybody says anything to him, God says to Samuel, that's the one. Anoint him. He is the one. David was the youngest of eight boys and the least likely to succeed. He wasn't even invited to the gathering. But how many of you know that God uses the least likely to do the almighty? Always. You can trace it back. All throughout scripture, he always uses the least likely to do the all. And it's because he can see what we can't see. It's what's on the inside that always counts. David became the greatest king in the history of Israel, an ancestor of Jesus, listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, became a man after God's own heart because he was chosen by God. Even though he was the least likely, God saw something in him. Saul may have been a physical giant, but David was a spiritual giant. So I think there's some application for us. I know I, I can speak for myself. Maybe, maybe this doesn't fit you. But I can speak for myself when I say that I don't think I fit the bill. I don't think I look the part. I don't think I, I fit God's criteria for what a preacher should be. Should be. But watch this. You may feel the same way, that, that you don't fit the bill, that, that you don't fit everybody else's uh, uh, idea of what such and such should be and what such and such. Listen, God wants to shock the world by using you. Because I can say 
that for me, when I look at my life, he has shocked the world by using somebody like me. That was another amen place right there. Because all of you, now listen, don't, don't, don't be all holy on me. You, you know that really whatever God is allowing you to do right now, you didn't fit the bill for it. Right? Is that right? And God operates that way. He always uses the least likely to do the almighty. I can prove it to you. He used Moses, a murderer. He used Nehemiah, a layman. He used Amos, a herdman from Tekoa, Peter, a fisherman, Matthew, a tax collector, Paul, a persecutor. And then he used a baby boy born in a manger, grew up as a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, had no form of comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but God used him. How did he use him? I hear you asking. I hear somebody's asking that question. How did he use him? Well, let me tell you how he used him. Isaiah helps us to see it because Isaiah says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep Isaiah says, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid up on the least likely, who is it, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. God always blows my mind. Here's something that John Piper says about this. John Piper says this, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Now listen, I need to, I got to say that one more time. That, 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 that blesses me. I'm going to read it from the screen. It, that, that, I wish I had thought of that. Isn't that good? He says, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. He sent Jesus, least likely, and accomplished the Almighty. His wisdom, here's my, here's my big idea, and I joked this morning, I'm going to joke again. It's probably not nearly as deep of a big idea that, as Mark would have. Mine's pretty simple, but it's profound in its simplicity. Here it is. God's wisdom is beyond amazing. I think we can all admit to that, admit God's wisdom is beyond amazing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for choosing and using us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. Now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. 
Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.